This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Plato. You know the feeling. You see the headline in the paper or get the alert on your phone about a big scientific breakthrough that has the potential to really change things. And then not much happens or that news turns out to be much less significant than the headlines made it seem. Well, part of the blame lies with the journalists and headline writers, but part may also lie with the scientific journals and the researchers publishing in them, trying to make their own work seem more significant than the data really supports. Joining me now to talk about that are my two guests, Armin Aladini, Assistant Professor of Medical Sciences at Columbia University Medical Center in New York and co-author of a commentary on this topic, published in the American Journal of Medicine, and Ivan Aransky, co-founder of Retraction Watch. He's also distinguished writer-in-residence at NYU, where he teaches medical journalism. Welcome, both of you, to Science Friday. Hi, Ira. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Ira. Good to be here. You're welcome. All right, Armin, you recently wrote about what you see as this troublesome trend. Can you tell us why? Elucidate a little bit more. Well, as, as scientists, the primary method of communicating what we find in our research is really through publishing our works in scientific journals. Now, generally speaking, scientists are trained to approach their observations with a lot of skepticism, and we try to really avoid any unwarranted claims that may not be based on our data. Now, at the same time, when we communicate our findings in these papers as authors of the, of the scientific articles, we naturally try to emphasize the significance and impact of the work that we've done. And we try to interpret them in, in certain ways to make it most compelling. But there is a balance here. And unfortunately, uh, the balance between this compelling presentation on the one hand and the avoidance of hyperbole on the other, we think might be shifting. And, and this is something that I and my colleagues have been especially seeing in the form of these very provocative publication titles that seem to be written to basically imply major breakthroughs and sort of transformative or paradigm-shifting findings. When we look at this data, of course, you know, you start sort of digging in a little bit more carefully, often we see that those claims are not quite what they are supposed to be, and they're not always supported by the data that's in those papers. Can you give me an idea of the kind of overstatement so our listeners have an idea of what you mean? I don't mean it may not be an exact paper, but the kind of research that gets published. Yeah. So, for example, there may be a statement to the effect that sex has plays an important role in the persistence of symptoms in, in long COVID, or that patients with uh, long COVID actually have the virus still in their bodies. These are two examples that I specifically focused on in the commentary that I wrote because they were in actual articles that were published and other people did analyses of those data, looked at those data, and it was clear that the claims did not perfectly match the data that was in those papers. Hmm. Now, Ivan, you've been watching the publishing field for a long time now. Uh, is this a new phenomenon? You know, Ira, there's nothing new under the sun. And this <laughs> is an example. Now, that doesn't mean we shouldn't be very concerned about this. So I, I share the concern here about what's been going on. But this is a, a longstanding problem. Uh, this certainly predates my examination of the scientific literature for issues and, you know, hype and bias. I can remember when I was uh, at Reuters Health, when I left there 10 years ago now, 
uh, some of the stories that I actually wrote a few, but my staff wrote even more about a lot of hype when it came to, you know, chemotherapy. And so the kinds of things you would see maybe aren't quite as stark as what we're discussing today, but they really overemphasized benefit. They picked markers. In other words, they picked signs of progress that were, you know, maybe misleading, or you might even say cherry-picked, and they would omit uh, side effects, or they would downplay side effects. Those are all the kinds of hypes that you see that I think they're endemic, and I think they've been endemic for a long time. And a lot of it, I think, has to do with the incentive structure that we're, you know, all scientists are working under. And I think that when we ignore the incentive structure, we're going to make the same mistakes over and over Publish or perish is a real phenomenon. And in order to get published, you generally need to say something pretty important, pretty sort of, you know, quote unquote, earth shattering or groundbreaking. Those are all these terms people use. And of course, Ira, I think they're appropriate when you're talking to geologists or a seismologist, but maybe not so much when you're talking to someone who's looking at cancer or something like that. And it tends to happen in grant applications. It's how people get funding. It certainly happens in publications. And it does happen. Let's take some of the blame, if you will, Ira, amongst ourselves as journalists. When we try and get the attention of readers, listeners, viewers, it's, it's noteworthy that those stories that tend to have a sort of false binary of this is absolutely wonderful do much better than the ones that have a lot of nuance. I did want to note one thing, if you'll allow. I think it's also important to be global about this issue. So in other words, not just look at specific examples that one particular group may have issues with. They think that a particular paper was hyped, and so they might want to sort of point that out. I think that's very important. But I think that it's also important to keep in mind uh, everyone's own biases and to sort of platform the fact that this is a, a global issue. And that, again, I would say an endemic issue. Mm -hmm. Armin, if Ivan has seen this going on for so many years that he's been following it, what did you find troubling? Is there a new trend? Is it being done more often? Is it more blatant? I think I'm seeing more of it, especially during the pandemic with this explosion of uh, research articles, uh, studies on COVID. There were a lot of claims being made in many places, uh, including in, in research articles that did not necessarily follow, follow the data. So during the pandemic, I think I saw more of it, but in general in mm -hmm. the past, you know, I've been doing research for over 20 years and I see more and more of this sort of hyped up titles. And perhaps with the increase in uh, how people get their news online uh, where we click on things. Uh, if you go on CNN, you know, the, the most exciting titles get clicked the most. I think with this, we're seeing even more and more of these hyped titles. Is it the journals that are trying to attract this? I think the journals are not stopping it, but it's, I think, primarily initially coming from the researchers themselves, because as, as Ivan pointed out as well, it's the incentive a structure is the structure of that. It's basically for scientists, you know, publishing the most prestigious journals is related to how they get promoted, how they get funded for their research, and increasingly, um, they get more publicity in the media. So these are all, all incentives and they're all related. Yeah. So you have these journals publishing them, and then you have the click driven media picks up on this and amplifies them without 
digging any deeper because that's that's what they do. Well, I don't, if I may, there's an interstitial there, which is press releases. And, uh-huh. you know, for years, actually, people have studied this, too. I you know, want to be mindful. This is not my idea at all. People have looked at if it's an error or hype that appears in a press release, how, you know, effortlessly and without any real questioning that shows up in media coverage. And this, the, the, the studies I'm thinking of happened even before the sort of explosion of, of social media where things get even more soundbited, if you will. And so that's actually quite depressing as a journalist. I think you'd agree either that things are just sort of passed along. Nobody's really doing any deep dives or even in, even questioning, even, even in the moment of, of analysis. But that sort of thing, I think we have to look at every stage. Uh, I absolutely agree with Armin that, you know, it's starting with the researchers. It's in the journals. I would probably be less generous than what Armin said in terms of journals not stopping it. A lot of them are writing the press releases that are problematic. So are universities because they all need to get what are known as or impact factors. You know, they need to be cited more often. These are sort of terms of art. You know, for example, during the pandemic, to, to speak to Armin's comments about what might have been happening over the past few years, two very major journals, actually, they were in an arms race, which one of them won for the moment, uh, where they, you know, one of them more than doubled their impact factor, which is a very flawed metric of how often papers are cited. And because they were publishing so many of these really splashy COVID-19 papers, some of which, by the way, were retracted, which is where we started thinking about them and writing about them. Um, but they were publishing all these papers that people had to cite because, you know, everyone was reading them and needed to be up on things, et cetera. And so it's, it's at every, every player in this, including, again, journalists and journals and universities and researchers, uh, even funding agencies, everyone is playing this game where they need more attention. And one of the key ways to get more attention is to you know, frankly, overplay and hype your findings. Yeah, and that's interesting, uh, Armin. You talked about the big name journals being drawn to these splashy findings. Do you find that then, on the other hand, the lesser known journals are doing better at this? Well, some are. I think, uh, generally speaking, the sort of society journals that have a sort of a, a more narrow focus. Generally speaking, they publish less of those articles, but this is becoming a problem that's affecting the entire business, especially with this sort of open access publishing. We are seeing more and more of that. But in general, I would say we see less of it with the lower tier, more focused, specialized journals. And also, uh, let me talk about specialized journalists, Ivan, for a second, because you teach medical journalism. You know, there are not as many medical journalists around on the major media platforms. They don't hire medical specialized science reporters, do they? Yeah, I think, you know, again, there's always nuance, but I think generally speaking, you're correct. And, and it actually parallels what Armin was just saying, what you were asking, Ira, about the specialized journals, right? There's actually been a what I would consider a fairly significant growth in specialized news outlets, whether they're trade publications, in other words, for uh, professionals in the space, which I've worked in a lot of those for, for a number of years, or for a public uh, that is more interested in science, maybe than average, for lack of a better term. Um, I think there's been a fair amount of growth there, although some contraction as time goes on. But that's where a lot of, for example, you know, to be fair, my students and students at other programs who are very specialized. I'm obviously quite biased here, and I think they're very uh, talented and well-trained. But that's where a lot of them gravitate because they want to have 
more of an impact they feel on having and having richer discussions that can include nuance. And you know, Armin was mentioning you know, CNN earlier, uh, etc. Large news outlets that you can't necessarily have those kinds of nuanced discussions because you have to compete with you know whatever the political or other big stories are that day. Um, I do think that it's something that has been tracked pretty well, and the large publications have just not uh, kept up in terms of hiring those folks. This is Science Friday from WNYC Studios. Can you offer a solution to this, Armin? Well, I think as, as Ivan sort of alluded to, we have to deal with the incentive structure, and we can think of some sort of short-term and long-term approaches. In the short term, universities really need to be rethinking how they reward uh, their scientists. Sure, they want their scientists to publish in the best journals and to bring in as much money as possible to the university to do their research. But really, to do good science, publishing in those sort of prestigious journals, that may not be the best policy for universities or funding agencies to advance science. The other thing is, of course, you know, this sort of peer review of manuscripts. So everything that we publish is supposedly peer reviewed, right? So we have other experts, our peers reviewing this and determining whether this should be published in its current format or not be published at all, etc. That peer review process needs to be changed and needs to be done more diligently. There should be reviewers that are involved need to have Uh, the proper expertise to review these papers. The editor who oversees this needs to also be familiar with the field. And also, um, you know, we talked about journalism and having expert journalists. In the long term, though, I think the solution really has to come from a change in how we teach our students, the culture of how we emphasize certain things in the way we teach um, the sort of PhD students and MD students. Uh, scientific rigor is extremely important, how data should be analyzed and how data should be interpreted. I can tell you that during my PhD, I was not taught that and I sort of learned it along the way. But I think we can we can change the way that uh, we teach research to students, and we, we need to prioritize these certain values of how we analyze data and how we communicate them. That should become part of the graduate program, in my opinion. Ivan, solutions? Any any thoughts on that? Um, no, I, I essentially uh, agree with Armin in terms of what where the various areas for improvement are. I I would push on the peer review process, and not to disagree with anything that Armin has said about uh, rigor and improving it, but I would even take a step back and say, let's be more honest about what peer review really can and can't do. I think we have been, if you'll forgive me, sort of sold the bill of goods by people who have a vested interest in convincing us that, or having us believe that peer review is a sort of uh, good housekeeping seal of approval. There's a sort of false binary of it's it's peer-reviewed or it's not peer-reviewed. Uh, that has been actually, I think, upended recently in, in what I would say is a good way by what are known as preprints, papers, manuscripts that are posted online um, that are not peer-reviewed, but that clearly say they're not peer-reviewed. And if that sort of nuance and that sort of uh, context is provided to other scientists, of course, and as well as to readers and listeners and viewers, I think we'd have a much better understanding of how 
science really works, of how peer review works and doesn't work. During the pandemic, journals were so desperate to publish papers about COVID-19 because they wanted to get cited more often. They actually asked me to peer review uh, five different papers about COVID-19. Now, you may think I know something about retractions, maybe about scientific publishing, a smattering of other things. I really don't know anything about COVID-19 other than what you know, I've tried to keep up, as others have, in the, with the literature. And yet that's what happened. And it also reveals a real problem, which is that there just aren't enough qualified peer reviewers to do the kind of job we've been expected to think that peer review does. And I think being honest about that is a really good start to having more trust in the process rather than in any particular result, which is what we've unfortunately gotten to uh, as a result of everything we've talked about today. Wow, really interesting point. We could start another whole program on that. We'll have to save that for another time, Ivan, and have have you and Armin come back and talk about it because we have run out of time. Thanks to both of my guests, Ivan Aransky, co-founder of Retraction Watch, Armin Aladini, assistant professor of medical sciences at Columbia University Medical Center in New York. Thank you, both of you, for being with us today. Thank you, Ira. Thank you, Ira.